We're going to finish up, Lord willing, we're going to finish up chapter 26 this morning. Kind of a long lesson, so I really need to jump right into it after we bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Father God, we again want to just praise your name and worship you and thank you and love you and give you all the honor and glory for being the fantastic, awesome, wonderful, gracious, loving, kind, just God that you are. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, we just come before your presence today and thank you, Lord, that we are not a persecuted nation, that we have still the freedom to gather together for the sole purpose of of studying your word, that we are so blessed individually to each have a copy of the only book you ever wrote, the book that tells us about yourself, tells us how to spend eternity in your presence which is through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, how we thank you for him and his willingness to become a man and to enter into this world, to leave the bliss and the presence of yourself, to enter into this world, to take on the likeness of a man and to suffer even the shameful death of the cross so that we might be freed from the penalty of our sin, which is death, that by putting our trust in him, knowing that he is not only Lord, but he is our Savior, that we can spend eternity in heaven. And the glories and the wonders that you have prepared for us there just cannot, we cannot even imagine with our finite minds. Even when we read the description in the book of Revelation, it is nothing we know in comparison to what you have prepared for us there. There is so much to thank you for, Father. We thank you for our salvation. And should there be one here today who has never put her trust and her faith in Jesus Christ, I would pray with all my heart that today would be her day of salvation, that especially before this study is ended this month, that she would make sure that she knows without a shadow of a doubt that she is one of your children. And, Father, now just go before me. May I decrease, may Christ increase as we look again at Jesus in Genesis. For we pray in his name. Amen. In Job 5.17, it says, Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore, despise not the chastening of the Almighty. We have been talking about the fact that God frequently uses trials and tests and the valleys in our, in our lives, the lives of believers, in order to drive us back to himself if we have strayed in some way or another by having taken our focus, our attention, off of him and off of the hope of heaven, the promised land. Psalm 119, verse 67 says, Before I was afflicted... I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. So the chastening of the Lord is a blessed thing. Isaac had somehow allowed his focus of the great promises of the Abrahamic covenant to grow dim over the years since his marriage to Rebekah and since the birth of his twin sons, Esau and Jacob. And we sense this because, number one, of his favoritism toward Esau, the wrong son the unspiritual, ungodly, worldly son. And we sense this, number two, because of his lack of faith in God during the famine, when the famine hit the land of Canaan. We looked at that last time. 
And number three, we sense this because of his lie concerning his relationship to Rebecca. He said that she was his sister when in fact she was his wife. It may be, it may well be that the famine that we read about in chapter 26, verse 1, that the famine was actually a trial God brought into Isaac's life in order to chastise him for his parental favoritism of Esau. What was that favoritism based on? Food, exactly. God may have been attempting, you see, through the shortage of food, that's what a famine is, to refocus Isaac's mind and heart on the great covenant promises that he had received as part of his spiritual legacy from his father Abraham. The Lord might have been attempting to re-spark a, um, re-spark a dimming faith in Isaac by getting him to uh, trust in the Lord during that famine, you know, knowing if he put his focus on the Lord and on his promises through Abraham, he would have known that God would keep his promise and therefore neither he nor his family would perish during the famine. However, Isaac, we learn, did not pass the famine test, did he? The first test that we read about. There are seven tests in chapter 26. He didn't pass the famine test. He had succumbed to not only the outward pressure of the fam- famine, but the inward pressure of his own flesh. And therefore, he fled from living in the heartland of Canaan. And just like his father before him, he was on his way where? To Egypt. He was on his way to Egypt in order to seek the answer to his problematic circumstances in the world. He was going to see- seek his answer in the world instead of in the Lord. But God, then we learned, graciously appeared to Isaac, not not only to directly command him to not go down into Egypt in verse 2, but also to remind him of the Abrahamic covenant, you know, and that that covenant was now his. Those promises now belong to Isaac as Abraham's heir. Yet even after God directly appeared and spoke to Isaac for the very first time, Isaac did not fully obey the Lord because of in, instead of sojourning where the Lord would direct him, he planted roots where? In Gerar. I mean, he, he literally planted roots because he not only moved there, but he became a farmer, right? And Gerar was the chief city of the Philistines, so he was living in the land of the Philistines. Gerar was also located right on or near the border of Egypt. So Isaac's obedience was only half-hearted. He should have realized that the same divine reasons which prevented him from going down into Egypt should also have prevented him from settling in Gerar. But instead, you see, he put his trust in the provision that was made possible by his father's covenant or peace treaty, which had been made with a former Abimelech. That was back in chapter 21. And remember that Abimelech had given Abraham and his descendants the right to live wherever they desired within their land. So you see, when the famine struck up where Isaac was, he figured, well, since God prevented him from going into Egypt, he would settle in Gerar in that area because his father made a peace pact there and he could live there. And we found out neither did Isaac place his trust in the Lord when it came to his fear regarding Rebekah. He had feared the famine... And he had also then feared for his life 
thinking that the Philistines would kill him in order to gain Rebekah because she was so beautiful if they knew that she was his wife. Now again then his faith plus his father's own negative experiences and having lied twice about his wife Sarah those two things still were not sufficient in Isaac to give him a passing score on the falsehood test. So what did we say about the falsehood test? Did he pass or fail? He failed. His flesh and his fear had the victory and he lied saying that Rebecca was his sister. Same sin his father had committed. And of course then we learned that his sin was discovered and he was shamed. Nevertheless, he remained there in Gerar. So God used yet another test. What do we call that test? The fruitfulness test to attempt to get Isaac back to where he needed to be in his spiritual walk with him, with the Lord. We learned that God prospered Isaac so greatly that he soon gained the inevitable fruit of envy. That was in verse 14. The Philistines not only envied his great wealth, but they became fearful of Isaac's power and the potential threat that he was becoming to their own national security. So to drive him away, raiding parties of Philistines went and stopped up, clogged with dirt, the wells which Abraham his father had dug before him many years before Wells which Isaac had, of course, been using for his livestock and his crops and, and his family. By filling Abraham's wells, the Philistines, knowing that Abraham was now dead, they were in essence tearing up, destroying, you know, the uh, mutual non-aggression peace treaty, which a former Abimelech had made with Abraham and with Abraham's descendants. Yet, now this was the answer to one of your homework questions last time. Yet, they, the Philistines, were not the first ones to have broken that peace treaty, were they? Who was the first one to break the peace treaty? Isaac, you all got that right? Did everybody get that right? Because remember that treaty, if you look back at chapter 21, verse 23, that treaty had uh, included the agreement that Abraham and his descendants were not to deal falsely with Abimelech or his son or his son's son. Now, this current Abimelech was either that Abimelech's son or his son's son, his grandson. And when Isaac lied to him about his rela relationship with Rebekah, he was dealing falsely. And so he, Isaac, was the one who first broke the peace treaty. So it's no wonder then that the Philistines, you see, did not fear the king's anger when they filled up Isaac's wells. Although their action was a deliberate encroachment on the territorial rights of another, as well as a deliberate breaking of that treaty, yet Isaac himself had already brought an end to that treaty with his lie. And then we saw that finally, let's see, what verse was this in? Uh, verse 16, finally, even Abimelech, the king himself, came to Isaac to ask him to leave their heir, to leave Gerar. He feared that Isaac had become much mightier than him, and he presented a, a threat to his kingdom. Still, however, we found out last time that Isaac did not then return 
to the heartland of Canaan. He only moved where? He moved outside of the city of Gerar. He moved into the valley of Gerar. Yet if he thought that by doing this, that um, that God, either God or the Philistines would leave him alone, he didn't understand God, neither did he understand the Philistines. The Lord would not leave Isaac alone because he loved Isaac. And he wanted Isaac to return to a place of fellowship with him. He wanted Isaac to refocus his life and his faith on him. The Philistines, on the other hand, would not leave Isaac alone because they envied him. They hated him. They wanted him completely out of their lands, removed from their their lands. So to accomplish his purposes... It appears that God sovereignly used the animosity and the envy of the Philistines to drive Isaac back to where he needed to be in his focus on the promised land. So now, as we continue, that was all in review. (laughs) As we continue part two of our look at the testing of Isaac, this is the only chapter in the Bible dedicated exclusively to Isaac. We're going to look at four more tests that Isaac encountered in these prime years of his life. Now, we've already looked at, as I said, we looked at the famine test, the falsehood test, and the fruitfulness test. Now, this morning, we're going to look at verses 19 to 35, the fighting test, the fear test, the forgiveness test, and the fatherhood test. I think I had called it the failure test last week. I, I changed my mind. I'm going to call it the fatherhood test. So we'll begin with our look at the fighting test. And for this, let's read verses 19 to 22. All right? Starting at verse 19. Let, I'm going to actually read verse 18 as a review. But our um, text is going to be on 19 to 22. But starting at verse 18, it says, And Isaac digged again the wells of water which they had digged in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them, meaning clogged them up, filled them up, after the death of Abraham. They were too afraid to do it when Abraham was still living, so they waited till he died, and then they filled up all his wells. And he, meaning Isaac, called their names, the wells' names, after the names by which his father had called them. Verse 19, And Isaac's servants digged in the valley and found there a well of springing water. And the herdmen of Gerar did strive with Isaac's herdmen, saying, The water is ours. And he, Isaac, called the name of the well Esek, because they strove with him. And they digged another well, and strove for that also. And he called the name of it Sitna. And he removed from thence and digged another well, and for that they strove not. And he called the name of it Rehoboth. And he said, For now the Lord hath made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Well, in verse 18, we learn that when Isaac relocated, after he got kicked out of the city of Gerar, he relocated to the east and further up the valley a little bit, and he opened, reopened the wells that his father, some hundred years earlier, had dug, had originally dug. But which since Abraham's death, the Philistines had plugged up, okay? And we learn that after he reopened his father's wells, he called those wells by the same names that his father had given to them. And now we're not told what those names were. But this, in doing this, this emphasized his right 
to them by way of inheritance. It was an understood law in those days that a well belonged to the one who had dug it and to the one who had named it. Even though the wells had been stopped up with earth, you know, with dirt, they still belonged to Abraham legally according to the law. So Isaac, who was Abraham's heir, was claiming them as his own in doing this. Also, it was according to the law known that plugging up someone's well was a, was, that was recognized as a deliberate act of contention. You know, that was, that was grounds for a battle because that was a deliberate act of, of contention on the territorial rights of another. Now, in verse 19, we are told that Isaac's servants found what? A well of springing water. And that's very significant. I should have had this up there. I'm sorry. It's very significant because it is. Uh, it speaks of a well of living water. If you want to write that down there. It was an artisan well. It meant it was continuously fed by an underground spring. My husband and I are very fortunate we have a well like that that's continuously fed by an underground spring. And to find such a well was a special blessing because it guaranteed fresh water at all times. So again, you see, we're, we're finding out how the Lord is blessing. He's continuously blessing Isaac. However... The consequence of that blessing was not only more envy, but strife as well. As well. (laughs) Well. Reminding us of the, uh, this reminds us of the contention. Remember the striving which arose between Lot's herdmen and Abraham's herdmen back in Genesis chapter 13. There's so much comparison between what Isaac goes through in this chapter and what his father before him had gone through. Uh, Remember that contention between Lot's men and Abraham's men when they had both increased their livestock so much because of their visit down into Egypt. And now we find that Isaac encountered a similar situation. The Philistine herdsmen who uh, were out in Gerar, the Valley of Gerar, began to strive with Isaac's herdmen, herdsmen over the, this special well of springing water. I mean, this, as I said, was a great blessing, and so they started having a battle. The Philistines were claiming that the well belonged to them. Now, did they dig it? No, it says Isaac's servants dug it, but the Philistines said it's ours. They obviously could not make that claim by right of having dug it, So they must have been doing it on the ground that Isaac no longer had any right to dig wells in their country. After all, they knew that their king had asked him to leave, and very likely they they knew all about that. Now, although they did not try to physically harm Isaac, they did strive with his herdsmen. And if Isaac had stood his ground, most likely a, a battle would have followed. And someone probably would have gotten hurt, if not killed. Because of the strife with the Philistine herdsmen, Isaac named the well what? Isaac. Sounds like his brother's name almost. Isaac. And that word in Hebrew means contention. It was, in other words, some have called it the well of strife. Or some have even called it the quarrel well. Now, Isaac was not the type of man 
We've learned this in our study. He was not the type of man who enjoyed a good fight, a good quarrel. He did not enjoy strife. He was a peace-loving man. Remember when his older brother Ishmael mocked him? Do we read of uh, little Isaac fighting back? No, I imagine he was just standing there crying. We don't hear about any resistance or any fighting back. When his father told him that he was to lay down his life on the altar there at Mount Moriah, what did Isaac do? Nothing to resist. I mean, he he didn't. He didn't resist. He didn't even utter one word of complaint. And even in his own home, where he was the father, he must have let Esau have his way rather than confront him and cause any contention. Now, deep down inside, I have to think that Isaac, because Isaac was a godly man, uh, he must have known that his eldest son was not living a godly life. And yet it would appear that Isaac did not strive with Esau or admonish him about it because he just didn't like contention. So when the Philistines wanted this special well of springing water, of living water, which his own servants had uh, dug, which um, Isaac's servants had dug, what did Isaac do? He left. He let them have it. He simply asked his servants to dig another well. He was willing, you see, to do whatever it took to maintain a peaceful relationship with the Philistines so that he could remain close to Gerar. Isaac, we, we learned this, Isaac had done extremely well living there in the land of the Philistines. He had done well with his crops. I mean, it told us a hundredfold. For every seed he planted, he got a harvest. Also, he had done very well with his livestock and with an expansion of his servants. Of course, these were all God's doing. This was God's doing. God was blessing him. And uh, he was re- Isaac was reluctant to move from that place. And he was also reluctant to fight. So when the Philistines again strove to take over his second well, what did he do? Same thing. He gave it to them. He just turned it over to them. First, however, he named that well. And you know what he named it? Sitna. Sitna means hatred or contempt. And this is interesting. It comes from the same Hebrew word, which means to lie in wait as an adversary. The same root word from which we get the word Satan. Apparently, you see, who was behind all this? The striving of the Philistines and the hatred that they were having for... Apparently, the Philistines were getting progressively uglier and uglier. Uh, they had gone from not, they had gone from envying him to driving him out of their country to contending with him to now what hatred hating him and this was uh, a satanic work although God was orchestrating the whole thing because Satan can do nothing without God's permission. Yet once again, we find that rather than fighting over his rights to this well, Isaac, as I said, simply gave the well to the Philistines and he moved on further away. What's God doing? Moving him further and further from Gerar and the land of the Philistines. And we find out that he dug yet another well. Well, well, well. Three holes in the ground. Okay, this is the third one. This time, we find out that the Philistines did not follow after him. 
and strive for the possession of the well. So he named it Rehoboth. You've all heard that name? Rehoboth. It means ample room or it or can mean enlargement and fruitfulness. Isaac finally found a place where he was left alone and where he had enough room for all his livestock and everything without contention. He had room for his family and, and all that he possessed. Now, that's, that's the basic story. That's, you know, the black and white of it. Spiritualizing the account of Isaac's well, wells, plural, as a few commentators have, have demonstrated, we're going to learn some very important truths. So I hope you can hang on and listen to this, okay? Wells in Bible days, and even, of course, in many places in the world today, including my own place where I live, <laughs> wells were the source of life and refreshment. I mean, you have to have water, right? And in the scripture, wells symbolize the blessings of the Lord. Many, many passages where I could tell you about that. But they symbolize the blessings from the Lord. They represent, wells represent what the Lord Jesus himself, you see, provides for the human soul. As he himself claimed at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Jewish people were empty and they were dry from the religion of the scribes and uh, the Pharisees who had turned Judaism into just a real burden, a real heavy yoke of bondage. That religion had failed the people and they were dry and thirsty. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, there was this elaborate Jewish ceremony where they actually poured out water from the pool of Siloam. And at that very moment when they were pouring out this water, trumpets were sounding. And it was at that exact time that the Lord Jesus, who was there in John chapter 7, verse 37, spoke these words to the Jews, the Jewish people. He said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. So we find that Christ himself is the water of life, is he not? He is that springing water. He is the living water. Who else in the scripture is a well, the water of life? Well, the, the word itself is a water of life because it cleanses and it purifies us. Read about that in Ephesians 5.26. What else? Who else? The Holy Spirit is also the water of life. Actually, you can read about that in the very next two verses, John 7, verses 38 and 39. So we've got Christ, the Word, and we've got the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Genesis account here, Abraham, symbolically speaking, had ministered the Lord and his Spirit and the Lord's Word to a dry and thirsty people, to dry and thirsty souls by digging wells, you know, making the life-giving water available to all. The Philistines, however, as we learned in verse 18, after Abraham died, the Philistines came along and what did they do to Abraham's wells? They filled them up. They stopped them up with dirt, with earth. They, therefore, the Philistines, this first time of Philistines, they represent the various groups of, of unbelievers 
who look like believers because they have taken up their position within the borders of the promised land. Where was the land of the Philistines? Was within the borders of Canaan. So they look like they're believers, but they're really unbelievers, and they actually oppose the true believers. Like the Philistines, you see, these false believers had not wanted the water of life themselves. They didn't use Abraham's wells. They didn't want it, want them for themselves, but neither did they want anyone else to benefit from those wells. And so what did they do? They choked the supply. Symbolically, those who initially filled the wells of Abraham were the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. Then, when the Lord Jesus Christ, who is symbolized in this account by who? Isaac, okay? He's, he's been a picture, Isaac has been a picture of Christ in many circumstances. We saw that especially back on Mount Moriah. So the Lord Jesus here symbolized in, in this particular type by Isaac, the man of the wells. Isaac is known as the man of the wells. When the Lord Jesus came to earth, he reopened his father's wells. Did he not? He opened the way of life, which his father had made available to all men, but which had been clogged up by the self-righteous spiritual leaders of Israel. Jesus opened up the well of living water to men, which his servants, you see, were so excited to discover. Let's look again at verse 19. It says, And Isaac's servants digged in the valley and found there a well of springing water. Who were Christ's servants who were so excited about finding the living water? The disciples, exactly. And what did all this do? Well, it enraged the enemy, the one who is always laying in wait as the adversary, Sitna, Satan, you know, the adversary of both the father and the son. And again, Satan did his greatest work by using those who looked like believers because they were within the borders of the promised land, but who had no God-given right to be there. He used false teachers, false theologians. He uses liberals. He used cult leaders. All these and more, tares, we could call them, symbolized by the Philistines to oppose true Christianity. And they proceeded to choke the channels of blessing which only come from the true wells, those originally dug by the Father and reopened by the Son. And these Philistines, who symbolize all the false leaders of Christendom, they seized the rights to the church for themselves, taking over positions of leadership which were not theirs by by right. They were not theirs. They they were um, the false shepherds, you know, who came into the fold by another way, not by the right way. They contended, Esek, they contended with the true believers and even hated, Sitna, hated them. For their father was really who? Satan. 
and they were merely his ministers dressed as angels of light, claiming the well of living water, claiming the promised land as theirs when in fact it was not theirs at all. So it's a beautiful type that we have here. Actually, the, um, the Philistines remained a problem in Canaan, in the land of Israel, for a long time. They continually, you can read about this in the Old Testament, they continuously strove against the descendants of the spiritual, the true descendants of Abraham and Isaac. And it wasn't until the coming of King David that they were finally put to an end. Similarly, the tares of the church who are sowed in, you know, with the wheat, the true believers, the false believers, the tares, will be rooted out of Christendom when? At the coming of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then and only then will there be ample room, Rehoboth, and true fruitfulness in the land. Because Rehoboth pictures the millennial kingdom of Christ. Now that is a beautiful picture, is it not? You see why Jesus is in Genesis in every chapter. When you read just the account, you miss half of the story. Okay, let's look now at the fear test. We've discussed the fighting test. We'll move on to the fear test, verses 23 to 25. It says, this is after he dug the well at Rehoboth, in verse 23, and he... Isaac went up from thence to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared unto him the same night, and said, I am the God of Abraham thy father, fear not, for I am with thee, and will bless thee, and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. And he builded an altar there, and called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants digged a well." Another well. Actually, Isaac is affiliated with seven wells. That's, again, very interesting if you know about the number seven. Well, here we are told that after digging the well at Rehoboth, Isaac apparently left his livestock with his herdsmen while he himself traveled on further north to where? Beersheba. And that's a place where many years earlier his father had made the initial covenant agreement with that earlier Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, back in Genesis 21. And Abraham had named that place Beersheba, meaning the well of the covenant, or also it could mean the well of the seven, because if you remember, Abraham had given Abimelech seven ewe lambs. To serve as a testimony to the fact that he had dug that well, that well of Beersheba. And then we had learned in that chapter 21 that Abraham had planted a grove of tamarisk trees in Beersheba. And he called upon the name of God using for the first time God's name El Olam, meaning the everlasting, the eternal God. That was the first time we ever found that name for God in scripture. The well... And the shady trees would serve as a place of great refreshment and revival for future generations. Abraham knew that when he planted that grove of trees. Well, after all the trials and the tests and all the bitter experiences that Isaac had encountered ever since he left the heartland of Canaan, you know, during the famine, 
he finally realizes, you know, he finally gets wise here, he realizes that it's time for him to return to Beersheba, where he had at one point in time enjoyed such great fellowship with not only his father Abraham, but also um, with his heavenly father, because it was there at Beersheba that both Abraham and Isaac had gone to be rested and refreshed after their experience up on Mount Moriah. That's in Genesis 22, verse 19. Perhaps Isaac now desired to find the joy that he had experienced in his walk with the Lord when he had dwelt there with his father in Beersheba. For a long time now, in our, our chapter, for a long time he had been facing a good deal of contention and strife and opposition and envy and hostility. And uh, we learned that he had been fearful of the famine. He had been fearful of his life because of the Philistines and Rebecca's beauty. And he had been fearful of having a battle with the Philistines who ran him out of Gerar and then chased him all over the countryside, taking possession of every well he dug. And he probably even yet feared some kind of a, an attack against him. So for a long time, he had, and also we learned this, for a long time, he had only been following the Lord half-heartedly. But his memories of an earlier good time, a good time of fellowship with his father and, and with God, uh, were brought back to him and drew him now, at long last, back to where God wanted him to be, back to Beersheba, which is outside of the land of the Philistines. So for the first time in verse 23... He is he has left the land of the Philistines, and he is left being close to the border of Egypt. Remember, Egypt symbolizes the world. You know, when a believer finally wakes up and realizes that he has only been serving the Lord half-heartedly, you know, with one foot in and one foot out, he needs a fresh experience with God, an experience where once again he gets his focus back on God's promises and on God's power to supply all of his needs. To have this experience, there's maybe people in here this morning that need to have a new, fresh experience with God. To have this, then we, like Isaac, should return to that place in our life where we last had fellowship with the Lord. And this doesn't mean that, you know, like Isaac, we need to relocate physically. But we need to relocate spiritually. We need to get away from trusting in the world for our answers and our security. We need to separate ourselves from our dependence on the world. We need to step out in faith, like Abraham had done in Ur. We need to step out in faith and simply put all of our fears into the hands of the Almighty God. Because no matter how far we may have drifted from the Lord or how unfaithful we might have been to him. Guess what? He is always faithful, is he not? Isaac found that to be true because on the very night, it says that, <clears throat> on the same night in verse 24, on the very night that he finally came out of the land of the Philistines and went to Beersheba on that very night, who appeared to him? The Lord appeared to him. You see, as soon as Isaac turned back to God... He found that God was right there, waiting for him, waiting to comfort him and waiting to remind him of four things. Waiting to remind him of his person, because what does he tell Isaac? He says, I am the God of Abraham, thy father. 
And also he reminds him of his protection. He says, fear not, which tells us Isaac was fearful. Fear not. He reminds Isaac of his presence. He says, I am with thee. And he reminds Isaac of his promises. He says, I will bless thee and multiply thy seed. So Isaac was able to pass the fear test. This is one he did pass, and the only reason he passed it is because he finally returned to God himself. He took his fears to where he needed to take them. He took his fears to God, and God relieved those fears by his reminder of his person, his protection, his presence, and his promises. And obviously here we we understand that Isaac must have confessed his sins because he was back now in fellowship with the Lord. And this is evidence to us in four ways that Isaac is in renewed fellowship with the Lord. Now, I'm answering some of your homework questions, so I hope you're listening, taking notes. First of all, Isaac's renewed fellowship with the Lord is evidenced by his worship. What does it tell us he built? An altar. He built an altar to the Lord in Beersheba. Now, guess what? This is the very first altar that we read about in connection with Isaac himself having built it. Now, he was put on an altar... But Abraham had built it. This is the first altar we read about in connection with Isaac having built it. During his long stay in Gerar, and it was a long stay, we read that. It told us he was there a long time. Did we ever once read about Isaac building an altar? No, we did not. That shows us that he had been out of fellowship with the Lord. He never built an altar there. Now, finally, he's back in fellowship. We know this because, number one, his worship, he built an altar. The second way we know that Isaac was back in fellowship with the Lord was by his words. We're told that he did what? He called upon the name of the Lord. Thirdly, we find his renewed fellowship is evidenced by his well. These all start with W's. His well. We are told that his servants began to dig a well there in Beersheba. And this was very probably the well that Abraham had originally dug back in Genesis 21, verses 30 to 31. And Isaac was intent on reopening that well. Why? Because, you see, he was planning to move there. Now, since in the next scene that we're going to look at in verses 26 to 33, we learn that Abimelech, the Philistine king, came to see Isaac in Beersheba, we discover that Isaac did move there. In fact, what are we told in verse 25? He pitched his tent there. So he did move there. So finally, Isaac was back out of the land of the Philistines. He was back in fellowship with the Lord. And it's interesting to notice that in one verse, look at verse 25. This is another homework question, so listen up. In one verse, it's very unique that all th- that Isaac is affiliated with all three aspects of fellowship with God. Because in this one short verse, we have mentioned the altar, the tent, and the well. The altar represents his worship and his witness for Jehovah God. The tent pictures that he understood he was merely a pilgrim passing through this world, not putting down any permanent roots, that he was just sojourning, that his true citizenship was in heaven. And the well symbolizes what? The Lord's blessings to Isaac through his son, through his word, and through the Holy Spirit. Now, there is a fourth way in which Isaac's renewed fellowship with the Lord is evidenced at this time, and that is by way of his witness. Uh, Personal blessings 
were not the only result of Isaac's return to a place of fellowship with the Lord. Even his enemies now strove to be at peace with him. It says in Proverbs 16:7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. So we're going to move from the fear test, which Isaac passed, only because he finally took his fears to God, to what? What's the next test? The forgiveness test. And my, um, the forgiveness test, let's look at verses 26 to 33. 26. Then Abimelech went to him from Gerar, and Ahuzath, one of his friends, and Phicol, the chief captain of his army. And Isaac said unto them, Wherefore come ye to me, seeing ye hate me, and have sent me away from you? And they said, We saw certainly that the Lord was with thee. So that's the witness he had. And we said, Let there be now an oath betwixt us, even betwixt us and thee, and let us make a covenant with thee, that thou wilt do us no hurt, as we have not touched thee, and as we have done unto thee nothing but good, and have sent thee away in peace. Thou art now the blessed of the Lord." And he, Isaac, made them a feast, and they did eat and drink. And they rose up betimes in the morning and swear one to another, and Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. And it came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came. Remember, they were digging a well there in Beersheba. They came and told him concerning the well which they had digged, and said unto him, We have found water. And he called it Sheba, therefore the name of the city is Beersheba unto this day. The Lord had just eased the fear of Isaac, but apparently the fear of Abimelech had been growing. With each new Philistine raid on one of Isaac's wells, which the king surely heard about, Abimelech's fear of retaliation, now perhaps this was a fear mostly from Isaac's God, But his fear of retaliation must have been increasing. So just like the previous Abimelech before him, who was either his father or his grandfather, uh, this Abimelech went to find Isaac, just as the other one had gone to find Abraham, in order to try to seek peace with him. And who did he take with him? He took with him a friend named Ahuzath and also a chief commander whose title was Phicol. Abimelech and Phicol are titles, they are not names. Now now that Isaac was out of his land, Abimelech determined that it was a wise thing to attempt to be on good uh, neighborly terms with Isaac. And, of course, with Isaac's God. I think that's what Abimelech feared more than anything, because he knew that Isaac's God was so obviously blessing Isaac and growing him very, very strong. Now, Isaac's non-resistance behavior, his non-resistant behavior with all those well raids, I think that gave Abimelech hope that Isaac might favor actually going ahead and making a peace agreement, you know, a mutual non-aggression peace pact with him. So he traveled up to Beersheba with his two friends there and uh, from Gerar in order to meet with Isaac. And when these surprise visitors arrived at the camp, Isaac, we find, was less than courteous to them. And we can understand that. That's very understandable. They had forced him both out of their city and also their land. So he was very abrupt with them in his opening question. 
He said, Wherefore come ye to me, seeing ye hate me, and have sent me away from you. We notice here that Isaac is about the boldest we ever have seen him. He's far bolder here than we've ever seen him before. And this is probably why. Because he's back in the saddle again. He's back in fellowship with the Lord who had fortified him, you see, with the promises back in verse 24. Isaac knew now that he was in a very strong position with the Philistines. But the sad thing is that he had always been in a very strong position with the Philistines if he had only known it. If he had, uh, you know, realized that he had always been under the protection of God and the blessings of God. But instead he had failed to understand that truth. And consequently he had feared not only his circumstances, the famine, but he had also feared the Philistines because of Rebekah and because of the well situations. Now, in response to Isaac's question, Abimelech and his two companions got right to the point. They got right to the issues. They told Isaac that they had observed that the Lord was with him, and they desired to uh, make an oath with him to form a covenant together. They admitted that they didn't want to be harmed by him, because after all, he is now much mightier than they are. And then they said something that was not altogether true. They claimed that they had not touched him. Okay, well, that part is true. They hadn't touched him. After all, Abimelech had made a, um, a law that if anybody touched Isaac or Rebekah, they would be put to death. Remember, that was back in verse 11. So that was true. They had not touched him. However, when Abimelech and his men went on to say that they had done nothing but good to Isaac and that they had sent him away in peace, was that completely true? No, that was not true. <laughs> they had envied him. They had forced him to leave. They had pursued him. They had contended with him. They had robbed him. And they had hated him, indicated by the name of the well Sitna. So to me, you know, it's amazing how the unsaved of this world can view their own wicked behavior so innocently. I mean, you see it all the time not only in the world but you see it on television and the news and everything they look at their own behavior so innocently uh, not recognizing it for the sin that it is you know not wanting to call it sin give it any other title but not sin but in their own eyes we see here that they they looked at themselves as good people who were coming to make a peace treaty with a very powerful, wealthy man who was obviously much blessed by the Lord. And notice twice in their speech, these Philistine leaders give lip service to the Lord. I mean, they call him the Lord, but they obviously did not know him. So again, I remind you that they symbolize, they represent professing believers, those within the borders of the promised land who say the name of the Lord, but don't know him at all. They are... They represent the Pharisees, and they can represent the tares in the church. Now, it's interesting to find that Isaac immediately did what in verse um, 30? What did he do immediately? He made them a feast, and they did eat and drink. Now, on the one hand, um, he must be a Baptist, yes, he likes to eat. <laughs> I think the, the Methodists and the Lutherans and the Presbyterians all like to eat, don't you? On the one hand, we all like to eat, period. On the one hand, it is to his credit 
to find that he was quick to forgive, right? That's to his credit. We commend him. He was quick to forgive his enemies, both his, his conduct during all the conflicts with the Philistines and his ready forgiveness here. Those are commendable characteristics which we find in Isaac. His conduct made a great impression on his enemies because they observed that he was indeed different with other men because what would other men have done? They would have fought back for what was theirs. You know, this is my will. I'm not going to give it up, especially when he was more powerful than they were. So he, you know, this was commendable. He had a good witness in front of his enemies. Isaac was a peacemaker. That's one thing we can definitely say about Isaac. He was a peacemaker. And he demonstrated his forgiveness for what they had done when they had booted him out of their land and stolen his wells. He demonstrated his forgiveness by hosting this feast. They ate and they drank together. And in that culture, to um, share a meal with others was a way of forging a friendship and a, a tie, you know, of mutual support. So that's commendable. However... There is a weakness also present in Isaac's immediate forgiveness and in his quickness to host a feast for the Philistines. And this weakness is clearly revealed when we compare this event to the similar one which occurred when that previous Abimelech had come to Abraham, likewise, to make a peace treaty. And remember, if you want to go back, or if you can just listen to me, but back in Genesis 21, verse 23, that first Abimelech had said to Abraham this. He said, according to the kindness that I have done unto thee, thou shalt do unto me. Was that statement true? We learned it wasn't. Because some of Abimelech's servants had violently taken away one of Abraham's wells. You know, same old story again. And whether Abimelech himself knew about that or not, still, he was the king, and those were his servants, so he was responsible. And we learned that Abraham, before making his peace agreement with Abimelech, before making that covenant, he had done what? He reproved him. He rebuked Abimelech. And that was in verse 25 of chapter 21. Now, Arthur Pink, in his commentary, he writes the following about Isaac in his dealings with Abimelech in Genesis 26:30. He says this, quote, The meekness which is of the Spirit will not set aside the requirements of righteousness, but will maintain the claims of God. And here, Isaac failed to forgive his Christian. But with that, there must be faithfulness in its season. It says in Luke 17, 8, the Lord speaking, If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. Abimelech had clearly wronged Isaac. But instead of dealing with Abimelech's conscience as his father Abraham had done with his Abimelech, Isaac made a feast. This was amiable, no doubt, but it was not upholding the claims of righteousness. End of quote. So 
You see, it was commendable, but it was also not commendable. He should have first rebuked Abimelech for all the raids which had been made on his well. And in doing that, he would have convicted Abimelech rightfully of his sin. And, you know, convicted his conscience, or at least tried to. Well, the following morning after the feast... Isaac and Abimelech and Ahuzath and Phicol, they rose up and they sealed the mutual non-aggression peace pact with their oaths. You know, they, they swore to one another. And most likely this peace agreement was based on the very same issues which Abraham's former peace treaty with the Philistines had covered nearly a hundred years earlier. And then we are told that Isaac sent his visitors away and they left in peace. In Genesis 26:32, we are told that on the same day, the same day that they, they left in the morning, on that very same day, his servants came to Isaac with great news. The hole which they had been digging struck water. Okay, so now they had a well. I don't know if this is the well Abraham had, which they reopened or not, but they found water. And to commemorate the treaty of peace, which he had just made with Abimelech, Isaac named the well what? Sheba. Same name his father had given to it. Um, And it, it meant well of the oath. They had taken an oath that day, so he gave it the name uh, Beersheba, Bear, B-E-E-R, is the Hebrew word for well. So Beersheba was the name of that city to this day, it says. Now, the opening of a well on the same day that Isaac had made that peace pack and then had sent Abimelech on his way, that was, again, an indication of God's delight that Isaac was now back where he needed to be. He was out of the land of the Philistines and he was away from the border of Egypt. He had built an altar. He had called upon the name of the Lord. He was at peace with his neighbors and everything looked pretty good except for the fact that sadly in the last two verses of this chapter we find that even though he had peace with his neighbors there was little peace in his own home. He may have done relatively well on uh, passing the forgiveness test, but he completely failed on the fatherhood test, which we'll look at last of all, verses 34 and 35. It says in verse 34, And Esau, his son, was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Bashamath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. You know, I thought, how awful to have a child who is a grief of mind to the parents. Some of you are there, and I can't think of anything sadder in life. You know, it is all too tragically frequently true that some of the world's greatest spiritual leaders are, have failed to make a godly impact on their own children. I know I've read this about Charles Spurgeon. I mean, he was out saving the world and his own children were apostate. That is all too frequent in this world. Now, where the twin sons of Isaac and Rebecca were during 
their extended stay in Gerar. All throughout this chapter, where they were, we don't know. Where were Jacob and Esau? I know some of you have even come to me and asked me that question. They're just simply not mentioned at all in chapter 26, except for this mention of Esau in the very last two verses. If they had been with their parents in the land of the Philistines, then it would seem strange that the Philistines would not have discovered that they were Isaac and Rebekah's sons. And you see, if they were Isaac and Rebekah's sons, then the Philistines would have known far sooner than they did that Rebekah was Isaac's wife, right? Now, it may be that Esau and Jacob, who were now adults, it may be that they lived somewhere else. Perhaps they lived up still in Lehi Roy. Maybe they had never left. Or perhaps they, instead of going down to Gerar, maybe they had gone up to Hebron, where the Hittite peoples lived. Remember, Hebron was where Abraham had lived and uh, where he, he and Sarah were buried. But whatever the situation might have been, we find out in verse 34 that when Esau was 40 years old, and how old would Jacob be? Jacob. Ah, trick question. They were twins. (laughs) If Esau was 40, Jacob was also 40. Okay. Didn't anybody get that? Did somebody say that? Okay. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Christy. All right, yes. Esau was 40. Jacob was 40. How old? Now, here's what you might have been thinking. How old was Isaac? No. Louder if you know. Right, I heard it here. 100. Because he was 60 when his sons were born. So Isaac is 100. All right, that was just trying to test your math skills. So anyway, when Esau was 40 years old, he did something which absolutely broke the heart of his parents. He married not one, but two Hittite women. Judith, I can pronounce that one, and Bashamath. Now, knowing, knowing of his grandfather's strict orders to his servant, Eliezer, to search for a suitable wife for Isaac, Esau's father. From where? From among the daughters of the Canaanites? No. To go and search for a a wife for Isaac from among his own people. Knowing this, Esau was without excuse for what he had done. Hittites were Canaanites, daughters of the Canaanites. They were an unacceptable match for someone from Abraham's descendants. So Esau committed two gross sins in his marriages. Number one, he violated God's demand for spiritual separation. And number two, he committed bigamy. He purposely married not just one woman, but he married two women. Actually, if you want to flip over to chapter 36 and verse 2, you will find that he later married even a third woman. So he had three wives. In fact, if you'll flip over to Hebrews 12:16, you'll find out that God called Esau a fornicator. So this tells us that Esau had no respect for marriage vows and that he had illicit relations with women even outside of the bond of marriage. So Esau was 
totally unconcerned about his responsibility toward his parents or God's promised blessings associated with the patriarchal line of his grandfather Abraham. The carnality of this man's nature is confirmed to us then once again, not only by the fact that he despised his birthright, but now it's also confirmed to us by his marriages. Chapter 26, the only chapter in Genesis which deals with Isaac alone, except for the very end when it talks about Esau, it ends on a very sad note, does it not? It, actually, the whole chapter is kind of sad. It began with a famine in the land, and it ends with a failure in the family. It began with fear and a lack of faith in God, and it ends with grief of mind over a wayward son. You know, Isaac's new daughters-in-law were not only a grief of mind to him and Rebekah because they were daughters of Canaanites, but why else do you think they would be a grief of mind to them? He loved him, but what would the daughters-in-law have been? Idolaters. They would not have worshipped the true God. They were idolaters, and uh, this also is why they were a grief of mind. They were ungodly in their lifestyles. And therefore, this would drag Esau even further down than he already was. And as grandparents... There would be, they would be grieved because they would realize there would be so little hope for a godly upbringing for the grandchildren of, uh, of Isaac and Rebekah through their son Esau. Isn't that what concerns us? You know, if we have a wayward son or daughter, what about the upbringing of our grandchildren? So they were, their hearts were literally broken. Isaac... The spiritual leader of his family had been too passive when it came to taking a firm stand with his eldest son. He had favored him, even though he was headed in the wrong direction. He had allowed Esau to pursue his pleasures out in the field rather than forcing him to take his responsibilities at home. You know, this modern teaching about not forcing your children is wrong. Absolutely. I know my father accused me of brainwashing my children. And I said, you better believe it. <laughs> I sure am. I'm brainwashing them toward the things of the Lord. Isaac had rewarded Esau with his love and his praise for his ability as a cunning hunter when he should have been directing him with every ounce of energy that he had toward the Lord and the things of the Lord. And if you think that I'm being unfair to Isaac, you know, as the father here, since we do know that uh, even, and I admit this, I'm the first one to admit this, that even the godliest of parents can have children who just simply rebel because what has God given each of us? Choice, free choice, human will. So I know that even if you've done everything right, you can still have a child who, who will be wayward. Yet, I want to point out that even after Esau's marriages to two pagan women, Isaac was still, we'll see this next week, Isaac was still determined to give his oldest son the blessing. And in doing so, he was attempting 
to deliberately thwart the plans and purpose of God himself. So we cannot commend Isaac in his fatherhood. He, he not only failed in his fatherhood to Esau, but to Jacob. He was not fair to Jacob in his love or in his obedience to God, you know, concerning that pregnancy prophecy about the two boys. So when it came to the fatherhood test, Isaac failed. He totally failed. If Satan, you know, cannot find a way to attack a man's faith in God, then how will he often attack him through his family? We see that so abundantly, even in the church, especially in the church. Divorce rate has now, I think, even it might have even passed in the church what the divorce rate is in the world. Sad. So Isaac's guard was not up in regard to his family, to his children, and he did very, very poorly with his sons. He favored the ungodly son, and he neglected the son whose heart was fixed on God. You know, it's a sad thing when God cannot say, as he had with Abraham, for I know him, or I know her, that he or she will command his or her children and his or her household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord. He could not say that of Isaac, that he knew he would command his children and his household after him. He failed as a father. And that is the worst failure of all.